Hi there. I'm Francoise Von Trapp, and this is the 3D Insights Podcast. Hi, everyone. As you know, we've been talking a lot about the chip shortage on this podcast and actions being taken around the globe to address it, from the U.S. Chips for America Act to Europe's Chips Act. We've also been getting perspectives from different parts of the semiconductor supply chain. So today, we're continuing this conversation from the perspective of the raw materials market. And here with me today is Louis Black, who is CEO of Almonte Industries, which is an international raw materials development company that mines tungsten, which, as you might know, is an integral material in semiconductor chips and electronics. So thank you for joining me today, Louis. Uh, hello. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure. Yeah, we're on uh, we're on opposite time zones. We're time travelers today. Um, Lewis is in Spain, and I'm in Arizona. Um, before we dive into the topic, can you tell us a little bit about Almonte and what the company does and your role there as CEO? Well, Almonte is the largest producer of tungsten concentrate outside of China. China obviously is the largest producer, accounting for about eighty three percent, followed by Russia. Um, but we are the, the Prime, the premier sort of destination if you want tungsten concentrate uh, in the West. And my role is I am the founder of the company. Uh, we've been doing this now. Some of our guys have been doing it for five generations. We have a mine in Portugal. It's been running for 126 years, two sites in Spain, and we're now in the process of reopening the world's largest tungsten mine in South Korea. So we, we've been very busy in trying to uh, accommodate all of our customers who are all vertical and all sort of supply the end users like the Teslas and the Boeings and the Apples. Um, but ultimately, there has been a big push in the last three to four years for, for greater choice for, for the American domestic manufacturers. Can we provide some context about how tungsten is used in semiconductor device manufacturing? We produce a, a product called the tungsten gas. It's tungsten hexafluoride gas. And essentially what it does, about 40% of what's produced in the world is consumed in South Korea in their semiconductors. They pump this gas into each individual wafer and it coats in the inner workings of the semiconductor a, a nano-sized fraction layer of tungsten because two things tungsten does. It's very conductive and it dissipates heat extremely well. And so it allows the, the chips to run far more processes. They can generate more heat and not basically combust. Uh, and so it, it's an absolutely integral part of the semiconductor. Without it, the semiconductor could never run as many processes, can't get as hot, and, and ultimately is not as efficient. So it's a very small part of the process, but absolutely irreplaceable. Okay, so when most people hear about the chip shortage, they, they only know that it's impacting the availability of cars and smartphones and tablets and appliances. Um, and many people think that the shortage was caused by the automotive market canceling chip orders when the pandemic hit and then recovering quickly and having those chips already reallocated to other products and not being able to get what they need quickly enough. So that's kind of like the general perception. What they don't really seem to think about is about all the different parts of the supply chain that play a role in the shortage that have been impacted by a plethora of crises. And when you mention Russia and China, um, that's, those are pretty hot areas right now that are being impacted by sanctions. So, so why don't we start there? Um, how has the pandemic and geopolitical situation impacted the semiconductor raw materials market? 
Well, I, I think, you know, predominantly you, you, the, the assumption that when things shut down, uh, there was a reallocation is is in part true, but but ultimately the whole dynamic of demand shifted. Uh, we all went home and we all started spending money. It was just, that's what we had to do. And then we add to this push to a greener future with with EVs, for instance. Right. And EVs have more than double the number of semiconductors contained within each vehicle than a regular gasoline car. So you are putting an extraordinary um, pressure on the capacity for semiconductors, both an increased com- consumer spending on electronics, essentially, and and you know the, the you know the dryers, the washers, the dishwashers, all these elements, the home renovations. But more importantly, EVs consume a vast number more semiconductors, and there just was never the capacity to accommodate this. And a semiconductor factory, contrary to popular opinion, is an extremely technically advanced project to put together. Mm-hmm. The dominant players are in Taiwan and South Korea. And it takes, I think, about nine weeks to produce one semiconductor when it goes through the, the plant. Sorry, one wafer or one chip? One wafer. One, one wafer. wafer going. And building these plants takes a number of years. And they were always working on a, on a very balanced sort of supply-demand curve for many years. They would increase their capacity by inflation every year uh, to accommodate uh, an uptick in certain sectors. But but COVID obviously created, the lockdowns created a huge spike in demand, mm-hmm. and it disrupted everything. And now, of course, uh, electric vehicles are, are now being sold in much greater quantities, putting even more pressure. And ultimately, if you're a car manufacturer, it's not the chip guys who are making the allocations. It's the consumers of those chips making allocations. If you're in the, in the car-making business and you know that there is a huge government push more towards EVs, you are going to push your allocation of semiconductors more to that market than, say, for instance, the gasoline vehicles. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately you have to <laughs> because you've got to capture this market, especially when EVs are a much more valuable proposition. They have a higher margin. They're more expensive. They're more of a luxury item. So it generates revenue and, and better returns for you. So I, I think it's going to take you know at least 24 months, maybe 36 months, to start to see a sort of rebalancing in semiconductor capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that in Taiwan and in South Korea, they're looking already and have already started mm-hmm. the, 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 the process of increasing their output. But raw materials are also a factor. So with Russia and China being the other two main locations and the war in Ukraine and the sanctions on China, how is that impacting the tungsten, the tungsten supply? Well, it's not really because, because if you look at the sanctions that have been placed upon Russia, they've not specifically targeted raw materials. Okay. So 90% of all raw materials produced in Russia are exported. And yes, they're going a different route now to market, but they're still finding their customers. So they're not going out predominantly through the EU. They come out through China now, but, and it, so it takes a bit longer to get to market. But with the global economy, sanctions are extremely difficult unless everybody agrees. So if, you know, for instance, Iranian oil was a good example. Everyone agreed the sanctions, and so they worked in that that instant. Mm -hmm. But we cannot live in our existing situation without access to many of the minerals that Russia currently produces. There's just, we can't replace them. And so then you have a political decision to make. Do you cut your nose to spite your face, 
uh, because you're also going to pay the price if you if you sanction those raw materials, or do you just put sanctions, you know, uh, as they've done on oligarchs and and various members of of, of the administration, but you've left the primary source of revenue alone because you can't afford to replace it. It's nothing you can do. Mm-hmm. And until you have that choice, I, I mean, I, I, I've never really supported this idea of anti-China, anti-Russia. Mm-hmm. These guys have done a great job in, in raw material production. Mm-hmm. They've, they've it's come over a number of years. They're very good at what they do. They've made it extremely easy to procure from them. Until you have to be able to give American manufacturers a choice of where they go to procure, you're going to have to live with the reality that this is what we have to, to, to work with. And, and that is the unfortunate scenario. And I think if you go back to the 70s and you look at the oil wars and, and the oil crisis, I mean, only a few years ago did, did the U.S. finally become independent, oil independent. That's mm-hmm. 40 years. Right. <laughs> took them. So... So, you know, China didn't get to this place they are right now, this dominance, because they decided last week this was a good idea. This has been a generational, you know, undertaking, and they've done it for 30 years, and they've executed incredibly well. And and if I talk to my customers, who all buy from just not, not just me, but also from China, and they're very honest about it, it's so easy. You, you know, if you open a mine in a democracy, you have to go through, you know, there's all kinds of of things that you have to consider. And if you're a consumer of that material and you want to get involved in that to support your supply chain, it's a lot of drama and time and effort to get it done. Whereas if you buy from China, you ring up your supplier and (laughs) three days later, it's on a boat. That's it. There's no issues. There's no problems. It's just done. They carry inventory. They're not ruled by CFOs and, and the obsession with balance sheets. It's, it's a very efficient uh, and all-embracing to our laziness approach to a supply chain. But there's a price, and the price is that you're dealing with you know areas of the world that maybe don't share your values and they don't sometimes behave terribly well and there's not an awful lot you can do about it except to buy from a different company yes but if that existed it's not just demand that's driven these shortages it's now also the push towards esg mm-hmm. to transparency of the supply chain right so in the past you could buy your raw materials from places that perhaps, you know, not too many questions were asked of. Right. The difference is now the end consumers, the Apples and the Teslas, they want to know right from the very beginning of the process where everything has come from, have all the ESG requirements been met. And this puts, again, added pressure on the supply chain because at this moment, there is not a great amount of diversity of supply. And so that's also compounded the problem. We are now at a, at a, at a level of expectation of compliance that, that ultimately has also placed a great deal of pressure on the supply chain because transparency is not a natural uh, scenario for many of the very large raw material suppliers. Australia is really the exception. And, and in part, Canada, although their resource market, their resource output is, has been declining over the years, 
because ultimately the government, you know, resources are falling out of favor in, in some democracies. But in countries like in, in, in certain countries in Asia, in China, in Russia, transparency is very difficult. And so they don't meet that criteria of ESG. And so it's, it, that's also putting a lot of pressure on the supply chain. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. When it comes to influencer marketing, there's a podcast that covers it all that you will want to add to your playlist. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. They talk about influencer marketing, social media, the creator economy, social commerce, and much, much more. They cover all aspects, including the creator economy, social commerce, the latest trends, the metaverse, TikTok trends, and that's just the beginning. The Influence Factor by the Influencer Marketing Factory. Add the podcast to your playlist right now. Um, so how does that play into the current chip shortage or with regard to raw materials or tungsten specifically? Well, I mean, at the moment, I think actually probably a good example is to, to talk briefly about defense. So 10 to 12% of tungsten is used in defense. Uh, it's used in munitions and penetrators and, and all kinds of, of terrible pieces of, of war. But that transparency, that ESG, and it is still the same for semiconductors, is that right now, say, for instance, in Europe, the largest armaments producer is a German company. It's called Rheinmetalls. And they've been tasked to rearm Europe because Europe essentially doesn't have any armies. And they figured that right now is probably a good time to, you know, look at, at addressing that. They can't procure tungsten because... The two company, only two companies approved to supply them tungsten. One has been procuring their, their tungsten for 25 years from Russia, and the other one has been recently sold to, to a, a very large corporation from Vietnam, which, of course, has no transparency because it's, it's a communist government. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place. I think semiconductors ultimately have less political pressure for transparency at this moment, but it will go that way. And I think that's many ways why you've seen not a huge rush by the, the large semiconductor manufacturers to build plants in Europe or in the United States. Because the question is, why is there not a large semiconductor, you know, one, one of the large producers of semiconductors, why don't they have a plant in the United States? I mean, the US is a voracious consumer of semiconductors. Wouldn't it make sense to have a plant there? You know, it's it's a question I can't answer, but I know from a mining perspective, if you ask me, you know, opening a mine in, in the United States, it's a very difficult proposition because ultimately you don't know with any incoming administration whether the rules aren't going to be changed <laughs> that you already are, are, are working to. So it makes opening mines in, in the U.S., a little fraught, a little, um, you know, it's, 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 it's certainly uh, the risk profile is increased from a regulatory point of view. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe the semiconductors take the, the same view is, is that they're going to increase capacity in their own territories, but going outside of their own territories, maybe they have some reluctance. Okay. So that kind of brings me to, um, or brings us to the topic of U.S. trying to gain self-sufficiency and become leaders in semiconductor manufacturing and the CHIPS Act and the $52 billion. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, we're wanting to increase semiconductor manufacturing onshore. And as you're saying now, we don't even have some of the raw materials available. So it's hard to, it's hard to become self-sufficient if we can't even access the raw materials, right? Well, I mean, it depends how you define self-sufficiency. Um, you know, it's, I think that when they talk about self-sufficiency, they're saying that we're going to produce our own semiconductors uh, for ourselves in country. They don't, I think, specifically address the raw materials. They also come from all kinds of weird and wonderful places. But the U.S. was the dominant producer of semiconductors for years. They were the, the, the kings. They were the kings of semiconductors. But the semiconductors they were producing back in the day and what's being produced now are very different. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, technology has got to an investment. Such huge amounts of investment was required to, to now to develop and design these cutting-edge semiconductors and manufacture them. These factories are, as I said, at the pinnacle of what we can achieve technically. Um, America, the U.S., fell behind dramatically. And as I said, Taiwan, I think it's the largest producer by numbers, but South Korea is the largest producer by revenue of semiconductors. So these are the two mm-hmm. kings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the $52 billion is, is uh, you know, a fantastic start. But if you look in South Korea, they announced, I, I think, three or four months ago, five months ago, that the industry, semiconductor industry there was going to deploy 350 billion over the next 10 years to increase capacity. These plants are not, are not cheap to build. Right. 52 billion is not going to get you, a, you know, is not going to get you self-sufficient. It's going to get yeah, you. A, we've, we've got both Samsung and TSMC building plants in the United States and vying for some of that 52 billion. Absolutely. But, you know, ultimately... That's going to be a, a journey. It's it's going to be a journey, I think. A lot of the people that I've been speaking to are concerned that Samsung, Intel, TSMC all vying for this $52 billion, that the companies that really need it, you know, where that money really needs to go is in um, R&D and workforce development and, um, and infrastructure, not necessarily the big companies who can afford to build their own factories without the U.S. government money. Yes. I mean, I mean, you know, I think there was, I, I talk about when, when the current administration came in, they did a fantastic memorandum it was published by the White House 90 days after ascending to the throne. And uh, it, was, it was actually done by some really smart people that got involved in this. When you read it, it made a lot of sense. It talked about the fragility of supply chain, areas that they were dependent on. Uh, they talked about government offtakes, the government stockpiling, really smart stuff. And, and so, so somebody spent a, a great deal of time analyzing this problem. And then it got to the Senate where the whole thing got butchered and they ended up coming up with the thing that if they give Blue Origins $20 billion, that was going to actually somehow help the supply chain. And, and that, I think, is the problem. The $52 billion is, is a fantastic incentive to encourage uh, production of semiconductors domestically. But I, I think you, you, you've, you're right. The money just ends up with companies who can easily afford to finance it. And the innovators, that, that is what the US is, is renowned for, sort of get left behind. And I think a, a good example, whether you like him or not, is Tesla. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, Tesla made electric vehicles fashionable because 
no one wanted an electric vehicle. Ten years ago, they couldn't go 70 miles on a battery, mm-hmm. on a charge. Mm-hmm. So they're all focused on hybrids and, you know, the Prius and everything. That was the future. And, and American innovation came along and he came along and he put, obviously, you know, his entire money into this and, and has been richly rewarded. But, but that's a great example of the ingenuity that exists in the U.S. to, to deal, to manage and deal and, and propose and, as a, a problem, to solve a problem. Um, the 52 billion, you know, the temptation is it's just easier just to give it to the big guys and say, I've done something, but they don't really do anything. Right. I think they have to encourage innovation. If you really want to find self-sufficiency, you've got to unleash America, you know, because for, I mean, I'm a naturalized American, so I'm a little biased, but, but ultimately no one finds solutions better <laughs> than the Americans in the free market. If you mm-hmm. give them the tools, somebody somewhere comes up with some crazy idea that turns out to be just incredible. Mm-hmm. And I think self-sufficiency, whether it be from raw materials or semiconductors or, you know, just bringing that self-sufficiency back to the U.S., the government should give those tools, but let the free market in the U.S. find the way. Did you read or hear about the interview with Morris Chang at the Brookings Institute earlier this week? I did, yes. Uh, yeah, and, and I thought that was very interesting. And I, when, I, when I read it, I actually thought about this conversation that we were going to have and how, you know, he basically compares, you know, he, they've had, TSMC has had the experience of, of running a facility in the United States in Oregon and that they, you know, they, he thinks it's kind of a fool's um, errand, I guess, to try to become, you know, that, that to think that we're going to become dominant because, especially with 50, only 52 billion, because the cost of manufacturing leading edge node technology is so much more in the U.S. than it is in Taiwan. Well, yes, I mean, these plants are predominantly automated. That's the, the, the real cost is in the research and development because these semiconductors have to constantly be, evolve. You know, the semiconductors you're producing this year are not the same as you were doing 24 months ago. Right. So it's a constant reinvestment uh, for, and to drive that technology forward of what semiconductors, I mean, remember that they are considered the brain of an EV. So we talk about EVs and we talk right. about that's the future, but the semiconductor is what gives you the the, the charge, the, the duration, the, the distance, the, the management of it. It's all done through the semiconductors. And right. I think people forget the semiconductor is the absolute key to an EV. But they're not using ultimate leading edge technology right now in EVs, are they? I mean, they, they talk about developing five nanometer and three nanometer, but we're still mostly, I think if you look at what's mostly being produced and used is much older node technology. Absolutely. And, and I think that's indicative of where this is going because, you know, the semiconductors are, you know, are, they do trail, especially in vehicles, if you look at, I mean, the good, great example is when you look at your satellite navigation in a car and how it seems it seems so fast when you first saw it, but now it's kind of like, mm, it's not so good when compared to like an iPad, for instance. Right. So, you know, ultimately, and, and besides, a car is is like anything. What you're seeing now was designed a number of years ago. Yeah, especially with reliable for because of reliability. You know. Yes. The devices that go into a car have to be a lot more reliable than one that goes into your phone. Yeah, you need, you know, you don't put in the latest, you know, I mean, the, you know, the latest thing in, in the vehicle because you don't really know how it's going to perform. So you you essentially gradually inch your way 
to uh, going forward. And the semiconductors are, are no different. Um, but but they will they are constantly evolving, and I'm a, I believe very much as as many of our my industry do that the semiconductor is going to be the key to the electric vehicle because that's what's going to manage the charge and how the energy is dissipated, and you know every component in that vehicle is going to be micromanaged by the semiconductor, and so it's an absolute key component. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of different things today and we are running out of time. So I want to just kind of wrap it up with a final overall summary question. What do semiconductor manufacturers need to understand about securing the supply chain for raw materials like tungsten? I think that ultimately they need to be able to provide themselves with greater choice. I think the idea of transparency in ESG is is very noble, but sometimes very difficult to implement. What's more important is that you've given yourself the ability to choose, that if one source drops away, you have something to pick up the slack. And then it's your decision where you procure. It's not because that's the only place you can buy it. It's the place you choose to buy it. And, And that kind of competition is what's going to bring everyone's level up in regard to ESG and transparency, because that gives you an advantage to 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 embrace those those concepts. So that's what I would say to a semiconductor manufacturer: give yourself choice, push for your raw materials to to be to have diversity of supply. Okay, thank you so much. Um, where can people learn more about you or reach out to you? Well, we have a, a website, www.amonti.com. Okay. Very simple. And can we connect to you on LinkedIn if they wanted to reach out personally? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Great. Well, I really appreciate your time today. This was really interesting. Um, but um, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Francois. Thank you very much. Okay. There's lots more to come. So tune in next time to the 3D Insights Podcast. The 3D Insights podcast is a production of 3D Insights, LLC.